Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons and we're going to do our recap of season two of this project and just kind of do a quick what we learned as I'm entering a hiatus here before starting back up again this this fall with the, with the third quarter of the project. And I do have a, a guest live from Afghanistan actually is uh, Logan Denning who is caught up on the podcast here and we're just going to kind of chat about what we what we learned here with uh, the the movies here. Uh, Logan, how's it going? Hey, good. Thanks for having me. No problem. So what I do think is kind of neat about the way this kind of spaced out is, so I, you know, I came up with my tentative list of 100 movies and just kind of how it played out. The halfway point, you know, around the 50, 51st movie ended up being the beginning of the 20th century. So then dividing up then the first half of that, the first 50 or so movies into, you know, two groups of 25 just the time period so you know the, the first 25 movies covered you know well hundreds of thousands of years if you go back to you know uh cre- creation with tragedy of man or then que- quest for fire with you know the cavemen and so tons and tons of time but then these last 25 movies basically was just uh i think less than 500 years because we started up on uh on Halloween with Vlad Tepes, so yeah, fourteen the fourteen fifties and fourteen sixties with the with the actual Dracula. So so let's let's so let's start there. That's what we, we we started back up there, and I I kind of thought it was fun to do a Halloween episode, and I'm, I'm going to try to do actually maybe Jack the Ripper if I because if, I think that'll time out about for the turn of the century to start up this next phase here. But I've always kind of found the historical Dracula fascinating and just and i thought it was really and i sort of kind of knew some of this stuff about him but it was really neat to kind of research just what a badass and patriot for his little area that the historical dracula was any any thoughts from you on that yeah so um i i remember listening to that podcast um on a run and thinking about so i knew that dracula was based off of you know a real guy vlad the impaler I did not know that the name Dracula comes from, you know, that Vlad, you know, Dracul, you know, Vlad the dragon or cause that right. was his dad. Right. And then Dracula, his dad was Dracul. And so he was Dracula. So he was son of the dragon. Yeah. 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 I had no idea. I thought Dracula was, you know, made up whole cloth by Bram Stoker when he oh, wrote right. the book. I had no idea. Okay. And that's cool. That's, that is kind of cool. Just like the little, it's almost kind of the, the, if you can get one thing, there's just kind of the cool little one things you can, you can, you can pick up from there. And just, and just then just how he was just kind of this, oh, piranha's not the right analogy, but like a chihuahua. So just tiny little country that basically was going to fight anybody who got near them, no matter how big they were. And I, and I think chihuahua, because I remember reading something about chihuahuas are brave to the point of stupidity that they would just like try to fight a lion. And that's almost kind of yes. what I thought of with uh, Wallachia here and just between the Ottoman Empire and Hungary and just had no business being as successful fighting those kind of bigger neighbors as as they were. And again, we're going to keep this. We can just kind of keep uh, keep rolling and rolling from there into the first kind of quote unquote real episode because the other one was kind of a bonus episode. But Richard III. And again, this for me, just the whole English monarch specifically is probably the fascination that had triggered this project in the first place. If it wasn't for my obsession with the English monarchs, I don't think it would ever have occurred to me and just how there's kind of a movie for everything. And of course this one specifically the, uh, this is the Shakespearean play. And the biggest thing for me and this, it was in the research was how Richard the third was probably not 
as evil as he's portrayed in the media, even though he probably was a bit of a bastard. Yeah, so I will uh I'll be a hundred percent honest. I have not seen all of these movies. Like vast majority of them I haven't seen. Correct. I was just kinda going that you've at least listened to the podcast episodes. I know I had no I was under no delusion that you'd seen all these movies. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will say though, the uh the fascination with the English monarchs I totally understand. And I think in one of your really early episodes, it might have been either I, I whatever the first episode was that you did about the English monarchs, you uh, mentioned that, oh, a good way to uh, kill time is to go on the Wikipedia page for, you know, the William English the crown. Con- William the Conqueror just, or something. Yeah, yeah. And just click and, you know, keep clicking back or forward or, you know, right. sideways. Right. And, uh, and just, you know, see how all of these famous monarchs throughout history are, are connected and it goes back a lot farther than than I realized before listening to the podcast. I didn't realize that you know. I mean, it's like literally a thousand years ago. They right or you know, they or, or, their... or more or more. I mean, because yeah, you got yeah. Ten, I mean, ten sixty six was the was the uh, was the the Norman invasion, William the Conqueror, and you can go then back to well before that, and then it even splits off. It just kind of depends on which branch you follow. But uh, the other one, and this isn't really in our timeline here. Do that with the popes sometime. You can go okay. from uh, Pope Francis and just keep cl- clicking success or uh, predecessor, predecessor, predecessor until you get to Saint Peter. Yeah, that's yeah, kind of neat. <laughs> yeah, that's in, in yeah that that's just kind of fascinating. And uh, the other one you can do on Wikipedia, and this isn't really on the history thing, but I I, I heard this once and I, I've tested it out a couple times and I think it does mostly work. Basically, if you go to any just pick any random wikipedia page and you click basically the first the first clickable entry within that article and you kind of skip like the pronunciation stuff or whatever but basically the first actual like when you're actually in the meat of the intro paragraph of whatever page you're on there click the first thing and then keep doing that on every page it, it sends you to and i guess you'll always get to philosophy Oh really? Just because eventually you're Howard starts. It's just kind of fascinating to you know you start with you know Tom Cruise and then you know twenty clicks later you're at the page for philosophy or you start with funny. crocheting. Twenty point twenty later you're at you're at uh, philosophy. So it's it's kind of an interesting trick just because everything gets broken down to at some point it's just what is the thing, so you end up at philosophy. Uh, so yeah. fun, fun little Wikipedia trick you can uh, <laughs> you can do sometime. Uh, yeah, so the, uh, the Richard III thing, I was interesting too. So I went to the Tower of London in 2010, and it was kind of neat being there. And of course, the big, you know, big thing they really talk about is the uh, the two the two princes that basically went missing and were presumed killed by Richard III. But there's definitely no hard evidence, and it could have just just as easily been people trying to undermine Richard that you know needed the kids out of the way for their own standpoint. So it's one of the oldest and most famous uh, unsolved disappearances because technically we don't know that they were murdered but i mean come on they were probably murdered um, right and then let's see next on here is the agony the agony and the ecstasy and that was cool too because again you, you think of these figures that you just have you know michelangelo you just have i don't know they're, they're on this kind of pedestal or they're just kind of larger than life figures but it's nice seeing these movies that just make them seem like, seem like real people and that michelangelo was just yeah he was a obviously beyond just a great artist like he was 
you know, a, a, a savant or, you know, a, you know, once in a thousand years kind of genius, but he was just a real person who happened to have those skills, I guess. And I thought the movie did a good job of that. And then, and then of course, then the Julius, the, or I think it was Julius the second, Pope Julius the second, very, very fascinating character that, uh, I think would be, I almost need to see if, uh, there's a book or something there. I could, or I could, I could probably do a whole podcast just on Julius the second. Just how the whole power dynamics of the papacy at that time, and what you know, the political games to become pope, and all was this basically. It was basically, it was basically House of Cards for the papacy for a long time in there. Kind of, actually, I don't know when it began and when it ended, but for a long time, the papacy was House of Cards. Yeah, and I think that's a that's kind of a an aspect of these podcasts is kind of overarching through all of these. Is a lot of the times when you think of somebody like Michelangelo or uh, you know, in, in, in Amadeus uh, with Mozart. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, any of the, you know, the big, really famous, you know, people who we remember, you know, several hundred years later, they're kind of, I guess, for lack of a better term, reduced to their work. Yes. But a lot of times you see these movies and you're like, oh, this is an actual guy. You know, this is a person who's dealing with, you know, things like, you know, relationships. That's just something that's really interesting to me in these in these podcasts that you you don't really think about very much otherwise. Yeah, and I and I mentioned it in the Tombstone episode that basically how Wyatt Earp was was not he was just a man. He wasn't the hero. He could he was someone who could never live up to his own reputation. Yeah, and uh, I think that's probably important. Or you, you meant you know you talking about Abraham Lincoln. It's like I guarantee Abraham Lincoln would not live up to his own reputation. And I'm not saying he's a bad guy. I'm sure he was a great guy, but he wasn't a perfect guy because he was a guy. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and no one's perfect, you know, even even our even our heroes from the past. I was going to say, that's another thing, too, that uh, that, you know, it becomes more and more apparent the more that that you look at a lot of this stuff is a lot of the time there are, uh, you know, there's two sides of every story. And it's it's not always, you know, a good guy and a bad guy, uh, despite the fact that a lot of the times in uh, e- even in like in a history class, you know, you you basically have it set up, you know, narratively, like these are the heroes, these are the villains, the good guys, you know, right. did all the good right. things to vanquish the bad guys. But yeah, a lot of the times the, the quote unquote bad guys, I mean, they were just people too, you know, looking out for, for their interests or, you know, what, what was important to them. They just happened to be on the losing side. And so now history remembers them as, you know, the villain or the bad guy. And it's not, it, it's, that's not always the case. No, right. Everyone's the hero of their own story. And most people, even if they agree that what they're doing is quote unquote wrong, they think they're doing it for the right reasons. I mean, you know, going, it's the, uh, it's the Avengers and, and Thanos thing. Thanos thinks he's doing something for the greater good, even if he has to be horrible to accomplish those, those ends. And I think that's what, that's what a good villain is. But again, then looking at history, you know, you know, let's pick, you know, you can pick any two sides. So yeah, so man for all seasons, you got, Henry VIII. Yeah, he was harsh. And yeah, he had wives put to death. And he had, you know, uh, in this movie, you know, Sir Thomas More is executed for basically defying the king. But from Henry VIII's perspective, you know, the country will suffer if I don't have a male heir because we just came off of the War of the Roses. And that was a two centuries long just horrible, horrible war, hor- you know, horrible destruction for the country. So we need the stability of a male heir. And since I don't know modern science and realize that it's not the woman's fault that she's giving me females instead of males or whatever. And, and then, of course, then if you know people are betraying him and doing things behind his back. And so 
he wasn't evil. He was doing things with a purpose that he thought was for the greater good of the country. And of course, then you got the whole megalomania associated with probably being a, a you know, a despot, I guess. But it's complicated. It's complicated. And then that rolls right into Ivan the Terrible, which that's the one thing I thought was cool on him was the idea that it basically meant it didn't mean I always kind of even thought that, that meant like the Russians didn't really care for him. Like when we look back at our history, it was like, oh, yeah, that was Ivan the Terrible. We didn't we didn't like him. It's like, no, no, no. We really liked him. He scared all our enemies because he was just so full. He, he filled them filled them with terror. He was terrible and uh, yeah and harsh and our guy. Yeah, that was uh, that was something that I learned to listen to that. I I think before I listened to that episode, I'm sure I had learned something about Ivan Ter- Ivan the Terrible uh, at some point during a history class, maybe. But, you know, basically, I only I, I recognized the name and I was like, oh, th- you know, this is going to be cool. We learn about all the, you know, messed up stuff they did and how much everybody hated them. And then it's like, oh, no, actually, it was completely the opposite. Right, right. He was just very he was he was he was ruthless with those who opposed him. But again, was operating in theory on what was best for his his country. Right. Of course, now I say it, we, having said all of that. The next movie, we get to a dude that was really messed up and probably irredeemable in all regards because he was probably just literally insane. Agiri, The Wrath of God. That, that's one, I'd, be, I'd be curious to hear your take when you actually watch this movie because it, it is kind of slow, but this dude was just a megalomaniac, insane person with probably no redeeming qualities. So forget everything we just said. There are some bad people. Like... <laughs> uh, L- L- I forget Lope de Aguirre. It just oh my gosh, what what a what a piece of work! I don't even know who to compare him to. I mean, he's darn near. And the first name that came to mind was like a Charles Manson. Like he's he wasn't necessarily that manipulative directly with getting people to. But that, he's that type of personality. I think that he was just a lunatic and a bad bad dude. Yeah, and that's that's something uh, I I think uh, when when you actually go back and look at that period in history, um, you know, the conquistadors and, and not just, you know, the Spanish conquistadors, basically a lot of the European, you know, colonialism, the European explorers um, that were colonizing uh, the new world. A lot of them did some really messed up stuff, you know, when they came to America, just because, you know, they, they essentially thought that they, they were better you know, on a base level than the the natives that they encountered. Um, and it also, you know, didn't help that they were carrying diseases that killed like 90% of the population, uh, native population uh, of America. Right. Of course, and then this guy takes it a step further and uh, didn't really care for the Spanish either, even though he was one. It was He was more just... Uh... Of course, right. they, of course, that show talks about the whole reason, the whole thing they're looking for is like the city of gold. Again, it's the the Europeans seeing themselves as superior to other other peoples, and then sadly, even though that was you know 500 years ago, we're still dealing with that in groups of people that think they are just inherently superior, not through any of their actions or their way of life, but just through their like genetic makeup. They are now somehow superior to to others and uh and just that thought is something that we've had to deal with far too long in uh, in our history and are still dealing with today unfortunately around the world and even in even in the united states where everything is mostly good i guess but we we uh we don't recognize a lot of these demons i guess 
Sure. Yeah. And when again, that goes back to, and then it perfect segue into intolerance, you know, we, we had the, the Catholics versus the Huguenots and then a, ma- a religious massacre. And yeah, again, so even this is in the 1570s in France, we still see that things like that aren't necessarily that far away. I mean, just wasn't it this week you get radicalized, you know, quote unquote Christians who, you know, want to take out Jews or Muslims by hitting them with their car and stuff. And and then obviously, you know, Muslims that, you know, think they're gonna get to heaven if they can blow up the infidels or whatever. And it's uh it 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 comes back to intolerance. And that was a movie from literally over a hundred years ago, talking about an event from, you know, over four hundred years ago. And man, it's just frustrating the things that our species can't get past and that, you know, because of ideas you have that are different than ideas i have i'm going to literally kill you over them even though they don't have anything to do with our day-to-day lives and you know working and living and raising families and going about our business but because of an idea i disagree with you on we're going to use that as an excuse for murder it it's blows my mind yeah and i mean it it's something that's been going on since you know since humans have been around basically i mean it's a tale as old as time yeah and you do and you do hear talks about that there there could be from a if you look at from a biological evolutionary standpoint there could be something built into us in that you know several hundred thousand years ago does it make sense to basically have this close-knit group that defends itself from outsiders and that that actually helps you propagate your tribe and species then because you are a little wary of the other and the outsider and that there's just and somehow if that helped us survive then those traits still existed today and and i don't know maybe there's something to that i just i would like to think we could you know move past our quote-unquote monkey brain and uh yeah so i i don't disagree that uh that you know tribalism is is hardwired uh, into the minds of you know every human, but you know so is the drive to just eat a bunch of sugar all the time. And uh, you know while there are you know definitely times where you know even myself I give into that. It's you know we've learned that that's something that you're is not good for you, uh, and that you're you know you're not supposed to do. No, I love I love that comparison. Yeah, I, I don't know if if we'll ever you know treat tribalism the same way that we treat something like, you know, an urge to eat junk food. But I think the world would be a lot better place if we did. And maybe that would be a better way to approach it. And so instead of saying, I don't know how to word this right, but instead of saying (laughs) you're racist, instead of saying you're racist, you're evil, maybe say, hey, we understand why you have this impulse, but can we agree that that impulse is counterproductive to living in our modern society? So for the betterment of everyone, <laughs> knock it off. And uh, similar to right. like everyone likes sugar, <laughs> I guess like they like racism. I don't know where we're going with this. But uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you recognize it's that it's not, not good. <laughs> we recognize it's not good if you always, always ate sugar or just – yeah. <laughs> I'm going to move on. <laughs> okay. 
So uh, these were kind of interesting. Uh, Dangerous Beauty, Shakespeare in Love, and we can kind of talk about those together. And just you're you're kind of getting into you know the we're ending the 16th century, and and uh, these are where I really start to feel we're into the. I mean, we're still a long ways from the modern world, but we're, I think we are starting to see that more modern sentiment and a modern view of the world. And that, yeah, outside of our modern medicine and technology, I still feel like the structure of the world at this time was basically the same. And well, that even goes into the Three Musketeers because they talked about how, how Richelieu kind of helped establish the modern view of nation states in Europe. And then, and it just how, just I just think how the world is today, and just the structure of the Western world. I think you see that at the end of the 16th century, and I don't know, just you know, the family at home, the going to work, the 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 class structure. It's I just feel like there's a lot of similarities that maybe before it was more kind of peasant and noble, and now you're getting into this thriving city middle class and the typical family structure and, and I, I i don't know I, I feel like this is when i see that shift looking through these movies yeah and that was that was something that i i guess i never really thought about i mean obviously you can you can tell that it happened um when you you know you look back at you know the the movies that we were talking about like at the beginning you know in basically in a feudal society and then today it was completely different but i guess i never really thought about or never really looked into when and how uh, exactly that that change that was that was uh probably the the yeah that was the biggest thing that i learned from that episode you know that that uh you know kind of before is it is it richelieu how do you pronounce it yeah yeah richelieu cardinal richelieu yeah so yeah so before richelieu you know you, you the kind of the you know fluid borders and kind of a not really you know super strong national identities but then that kind of starts to solidify around that time into actual countries with borders and, you know, distinct cultures that, that we have, you know, today. Yes. And, how, and then all kind of times out with the Renaissance rolling into the age of enlightenment. And, and again, we're just getting into that more, more modern, modern sentiment of the world. Yeah. But then jumping over to other parts of the world. So, you know, in the, in the 17th century with, uh, with Tukaram and just, just getting an interesting look at India at, at, at that time. And, you know, and that these different parts of the world, especially in an age where, you know, travel and communication wasn't anywhere near, you know, the way we understand it now, let alone the, the 20th century. So these, these things happen at different times in different places. So, yeah, we could say, and I think that's what leads to a lot of the Western world arrogance is we like to think we were first in a lot of these things. But, of course, then you go back to, again, kind of from the from the first quarter of the project where it's easy to forget that basically the Middle East was way ahead of Europe for a couple of centuries there before the Renaissance and uh, Age of Enlightenment. And so it's just kind of this constant balance. So you could argue India was a little, uh, little behind there. And I don't want to say that Britain helped them when they when they, they took over, but... <laughs> there, there was definitely a Western influence that happened with the British uh, colonization of of India, but yeah, I would I would still say Britain was a net harm there. We'll uh, we'll get into that next in the 20th century when uh, <laughs> when Britain basically raped India. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Re- real quick before we uh, before we move on to uh, to silence in your Shakespeare and Love podcast, uh, I remember you kind of defending 
the fact that it beat Saving Private Ryan uh, for Best Picture. And you said that that was not necessarily a bad thing. I wholeheartedly disagree. Uh, I think that you can absolutely compare the two movies. Um, I, I know it is kind of like comparing apples to oranges, uh, but I like apples better than oranges. Fair. And uh, yeah, I, I, ab- I absolutely think that it was a shame that Saving Private Ryan did not win Best Picture that year. And uh, and I do fully recognize that I am in the minority with my opinion there. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I do I do I do need to rewatch Saving Private Ryan and. Uh, and I do, and I do enjoy it. I saw it in the theater. I, I was, I was, you know, I was riveted seeing it in the theater. But uh, have you watched Saving Pri- or have you watched Shakespeare in Love recently? No, I think I watched it. I've I've seen it once, and it was probably, gosh, at least seven or eight years ago. Okay, okay. And I just give a lot of points to Clever. Yeah. And and so there's there are different types of movies, and because I love Clever so much, as good as Saving Private Ryan is. Clever just isn't part of it. Not that it's not clever. It's just that's not a part of at all what the movie is about. And so that it just maybe just so as far as my personal sentiments go, uh, and I'm not even saying I like Shakespeare in Love better. I'm saying I get it and really appreciate it and think it's just it's just a super clever story and a lot of fun. And uh, I don't mind that it beats Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, <laughs> point point taken. Point taken. <laughs> Silence uh, again. This is almost again. We're kind of backsliding here too. You know, as much as we're talking about, we're getting to the modern world. But then you're kind of seeing when a, a, a and again, not to I, I got my our darned kind of Western arrogance here, thinking we're quote unquote more advanced. But w- when you're already seeing that the, the Christians trying to make uh, headway in Japan and basically being slaughtered after some years of initial kind of reluctant acceptance. Then just straight up getting slaughtered and 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 massacred over there, and all the people they converted just being you know killed en mass. It's it's, it's heartbreaking. And, and have you, is this a movie? Is this one I thought you might have seen? No, and I so I had, not only had I never heard of this movie, oh. I had never heard of this you know this event in history okay, either. Okay. So I was, yeah, this, this was a really interesting episode for me. And, and I was kind of surprised that I'd never heard of this movie because it's only three years old. Right. And Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Andrew Garfield and, and Liam Neeson. Like I, I was just, I was surprised that I had never, I'd never heard of it, let alone, you know, seen it, but yeah, yeah, I I definitely want to check it out though. It, It sounds, it sounds like it's really good. Yeah, and I'm trying to think. I mean, I, it's definitely not something I was super familiar with before. And I know I mentioned the book Shogun in in the episode, and mm-hmm. I actually don't remember it in the timeline where I think I probably did read the book and then saw the movie. So I was kind of already familiar with this as being a thing because of the book. Well, well, I take that back because the book is before it. So the book Shogun, which again technically has nothing to do other than it's in a similar period in Japan. It's basically right before this all happens, where they're basically still accepting that the Christians are here and just kind of mostly okay with it and do and trade with them and stuff. And then the silence kind of takes place after they have kicked out the Christians and basically start killing any that don't renounce the renounce the faith. Yeah, rough, rough, rough time. And uh, yeah, I, and I think Japan now. I'm sure what I think they're not a super religious country probably in general, but I think there's, I think Christianity still exists there at least significantly to some extent. 
Yeah, and this is going to be kind of a, a recurring theme um, <laughs> as we go through the rest of these. But uh, yeah, with my with my kind of uh, you know Eurocentric view of of history, you know, in my mind, it's like you know thinking about the history of Japan. It's like oh yeah, you know there were there were some samurai, and then you know they were isolationists for a little while, and then you know the the British went there, and then you know and then they were our enemy in World War Two, and that's like you know that's like thousands of years right uh, right but that was like the extent of my my japanese history knowledge but yeah it's it's like it's little things like that that you know i never even thought about or, or knew had happened well and that actually gets into a much larger point of in some ways the failing of education in general i'm not even saying the american education system and just kind of the inevitabilities of wherever you grow up you're going to learn that history as being the primary history that you learn and i've always thought of myself as a you know not to sound too hippy dippy but a citizen of the world like i'm a human first and an american somewhere else down the list and i love the united states and i am proud to be an american but i don't consider myself inherently better than someone from japan or someone from yugoslavia or wait is that even a country anymore <laughs> I, i'm old <laughs> it's not but i know yeah, what you mean <laughs> i'm old um, but uh so I almost feel like then like cheated out of why didn't I get to learn Japanese history growing up? And, and, and why was it so much focus on American history? And obviously you need to have some, you know, you, you vote within the political system of the United States. You need to have, understand the history of that system. I get that. But that's, I think, what also leads, though, to this nationalism we see across the world being a big problem right now. And it's OK to be proud of where you are from. But when you inherently think where you are from is superior than the other froms to be from or the other where's to be from, then I right. think that's that's a problem. And I think one, maybe if we had a more broad – I know we do talk about world history, but it's as there's this othering of it. So why aren't we looking at kind of this all being equal when we're maybe you're studying world history and we maybe kind of – I don't know, maybe help lessen some of these uh, – conflicts if you're learning from the time you're five about the glorious people of kazakhstan i think maybe it makes you a little more empathetic if there's conflicts there or there's you know you're meeting people from there they're not the other than all of a sudden i don't know i'm just kind of making this up as i go yeah. but and and another thing too is you know even I, I think this is especially true in american schools which obviously that's the only place i've ever gone to school but it seems like even when you learn, quote unquote, world history, you know, you learn kind of about, you know, the ancient civilizations, you know, the, the Greeks, the Romans. And then you learn about, you know, like European history, because that's like where that's where, you know, the you know, the colonists that came to America to begin American history right. came from Europe. So it's just right. It's what led. It's what led to us. Yeah. Right. It's, it's basically just an extension of American history, just pre-America. Right. Even in our world history, it's it's still basically just an extension of American history. We don't learn a lot about you know Japan or you know Kazakhstan or you know Sweden, you know wherever. Right. If it doesn't directly kind of pertain to american history right and again when we do it's 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 made to be seen as the other right yeah let's see um oh th this is one uh, the favorite i was just 
that couldn't have worked out better on the timeline that basically that movie was in the theaters right as it needed to be, you know, fitting in the timeline here. And again, so another one of my English, English monarchs that I'm kind of enamored with. And this is one I basically knew nothing about. I mean, Queen Anne, I mean, who remembers Queen Anne? And so that was just really, really neat to see that story. And then listening to, you know, and that's the one too, where I did it. I basically did my research as I was recording it. So that was kind of neat too, to see, uh, I guess, get my honest reactions of, oh crap, this story is more realistic than I thought it was. Yeah. Um, and I'm guessing that wasn't one of the five movies you saw from last year. It was not. No. <laughs> uh, Minbala, you know, I mentioned Kazakhstan. That, that's because yeah, we talk about. So yes, I saw Borat in the theaters. It was funny, but you could argue it's horribly racist or xenophobic or whatever when he's just completely mocking this other country as like the rednecks of that part of Central Asia and well. Just and, so not and the fair. The sad thing is that that's that's probably the extent of exposure to Kazakh history and culture that you know exactly a majority of Americans have is Borat. <laughs> right, right. Na- yeah, name name one other remote reference to Kazakhstan: a city, a person. It's nothing, nothing. Exactly, they don't yep. exist outside of. They have goats and borats from there, <laughs> <laughs> but again, and that's, that's what's crazy too. Too like all these all these countries have massive cities that we've never heard of. I mean, we're like, oh hey, I'm gonna go up to Kansas City for the weekend. Yeah, Kansas City is tiny, basically compared to all the biggest cities in all of these countries. Yeah, and uh, I think just off, we'll see if I, I'm gonna we'll have to we'll have to quiz me so the listeners there can see if I'm right. Uh, I think Almaty is like the big city in Kazakhstan. So, well, uh, I'll look that up later to see if I got that right. But uh, I'm going to go with Al- Almaty is the, the big city in Kazakhstan. And if I'm wrong, you know what? I knew more than you did anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> That's one more city in Kazakhstan than I know, really. <laughs> okay. And I, and I might be wrong. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> last of the Mohicans. So we're getting into North America. And it was hard not to get a little more North American Central here. But... Uh, this is a movie that's kind of always iconic and one I always kind of heard of growing up. And it's actually pretty slow, but I've always been a huge Daniel Day-Lewis fan to the point that when he actually started getting, uh, like when he won the Oscars kind of back-to-back for uh, what There Will Be Blood and then Lincoln within a relatively short time period there, I was almost kind of not mad because I'm a big fan of his, but it was almost like the secret was out. Like I had thought, you know, since like the year 2000, this dude's like the best actor ever and no one talks about him. And then he <laughs> kind of had this, this other run here. Cause he'd won for, he won in 89 for a uh, mile of foot and mm-hmm. had just kind of done a lot. Just always just so diverse. Like, you know, you know, he's had a reputation for almost kind of being method to a comic degree. Like he's the guy right. that's like, Oh, I'm going to play a boxer. So I will spend a year learning to box. Yeah, and it's like it's even like stuff that doesn't even necessarily matter or, you know, would add to the performance. Correct. Like uh I think for what was the the movie he did where he was the like the dress designer? Yeah, Phantom Thread. Phantom Thread. Yeah. I, he spent like over a year learning how to design dresses and how to sew and it's like I mean, yeah, that's that's really cool. Like he, you know, he's really dedicated to his craft, but <laughs> I wonder how much of that actually comes through, you know, when, right. when you watch the. And and I forget the two that they talked about. So 
I'm going to say it was Marlon Brando and Laurence Olivier, and it probably wasn't those two, but we're going to use them as the proxies for whoever this story actually was about. But basically, Brando was also a very just kind of a method guy and just, you know, you know, what may stay in character and just, you know, just acting real as opposed to like an Olivier who comes from the stage and performances were always big and everything else. But basically, so the idea is that, you know, the two people like that are are, are talking, you know, about the craft and, you know, the Olivier person just says, uh, oh, oh, dear, why don't you just try acting? <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just you don't have to become a dressmaker. <laughs> just act like a dressmaker. Yeah. Be an actor. Right. But at the same time, <laughs> I I'm I'm a huge Daniel Day-Lewis fan. I think he is just utterly fascinating to watch on screen as he does just kind of take it to this other level that's just unreal just how he just disappears in these roles. So yes, in Last of the Mohicans, he plays a oh, frontiersman, I guess you would you would say even though it's kind of we're yeah. not even we're not even to the what we would consider the old West or out West, you know, West for them as, you know, Ohio <laughs> at, at this yeah. point in American history. Or as, as they say in the movie, they call it Kentucky. Yes. And that's like, <laughs> that's like the Western, like unexplored frontier. True. Nobody true. knows what's out there. Land is Kentucky. Yeah. That's, but, but that's what it was. And again, I, you know, you're going back to what we were talking about earlier about how in, in, when you're in, we look at these old movies and, Put yourself in their world. That's what it was. It was this whole. We knew we were on this whole land, and we were just kind of, you know, you didn't, you didn't know what was out there. It was literally the frontier, like going into the ocean or going into space. It's like you just kind of know there's a bunch more native peoples out there and just wilderness. And right. I'm not going to go there. That's scary. And it's just, it was just this un. It, it just, I think it's impossible for us. To, there's nothing equivalent for us to even think about now, unless you were going to say go to another galaxy and explore a planet having no idea what you were going to find there. That's kind of what it is. And yeah. And we, uh, we definitely missed out on that. I I think it's even, it's even crazier that, you know, not only did people were people going out and exploring those places, but people were like taking their whole family and just like, right. We're just going to go to this, you know, this land, you know, the, the government is basically going to, which I, I don't know if at this time, uh, homesteading was a thing. This predates that I believe. Oh, okay. But you know, e- even still the, the concept of we're going to go to Kentucky, this wild open wilderness area that no white person's ever been to. And, uh, but it's land that I can afford and I'm just going right, to go right. and build a cabin with my family and we're going to have a farm and, you know, set up a life here and, you know, maybe we'll be successful and maybe we'll get, you know, murdered horribly or maybe we'll get eaten by animals. We don't know, but we're going to do it. Right. Or, or die of cholera. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I should say this predates the Homestead Acts, but I, I think there was just kind of a general, yeah, if you just go and started farming land and no one else is on it, everyone was like, all right, sure. Like there was just, I think what I say in the, uh, the episode on the immigrants was there was just more land than people. And so, right. yeah, if you're going to farm this land, then sure, it's your land, whatever. And then maybe the government, yeah. you know, as, as we kind of then would organize things, you know, people would come in and say like, oh, this needs to be public or whatever. But for the most part, yeah, if you just show up and start farming it and, you know, enough people kind of move to the same area to protect each other. So you're going to farm that land. I'm going to farm this land. And together we'll kind of team up to protect ourselves from outsiders, whether that's, you know, other people coming in from the east or native native tribes that – 
of course, we're taking over their land, and they have a problem with that for some reason. Yeah, I was I was just going to bring that up. I was going to, you know, you you said, oh yeah, you know, they they were allowed to move there, you know, if there's no people on the land, and I think it'd be more accurate to say as long as there's no white people there. Correct. Uh, yeah, go for it. Correct. <laughs> and uh, and that's kind of interesting though too, because I, I mean, for the most part, again, of course, man, even though this is now North American history that we don't understand completely, but uh, most of the native tribes were not not nomadic per se, but they just didn't view land the same way. And the idea of owning land would be like owning the air. And it just like, right. yeah, yeah, you'd use it and you can maybe grow some things, but they weren't tied. We get this, this nostalgia, you know, kind of tied to certain locations and, or, uh, you know, in ownership laws of, you know, this is mine, this, this is mine, that's yours. And get off my, get off my, get off my, get off my lawn. And uh, yeah. that just wasn't a thing that the, uh, the native Americans seemed to even, it just wasn't a thing for them. To, to their to their detriment when we when we came over, right? Uh, yep. Madness of King George, uh, more just another one of my English English monarch stories, and uh, of course now we're getting into you know he's a I think he was like the grandpa or great grandpa of you know Queen Victoria, who then is you know a direct ancestor of you know today's Queen Elizabeth. So we're, we're just getting a little closer to that kind of the modern modern house, and I think the only reason like we're on the we're on the House of Windsor now, and he was I guess like the House of Hanover. But I think the only reason it even switched was kind of just some weird things around World War II or something that, that if you ever saw The Crown, that's the show on Netflix you need to watch for sure. Yeah, I, I have not watched it, uh, but my wife is a huge fan of that show. I think she watched all of it Okay, and said it was really good. But that's that's a young Queen Elizabeth, right? Yes, it's yeah, like, which is getting ahead of our timeline here. Character. Yeah, which is getting ahead of yeah. our timeline here, but there was definitely an issue okay. – with the house name when she becomes queen and you know do they keep the windsor name and and basically they went away from hanover because of the german connection during world war one and world war two so oh, okay. so you got the hand you know king george the Hanover. so there was so most, most of these when they have these uh oh a house shift isn't quite the right thing but you know kind of the the dynasties or whatever like they're all related but when they switch from you know the you know the tudor kings and queens to the stuart monarchs to you know now the house of windsor it's Usually because you hit a point where there wasn't an heir and you had to retreat back up the family tree and then down a different branch. And that's usually when there's a, quote, switch from, say, the Tudors to the Stuarts. Stuarts. But right. uh, there wasn't really one from the Hanoverian kings to our modern monarchs. But it was kind of to, I think, distance themselves from the German, which is something I didn't ever even think about until watching watching The Crown. But, uh, yeah, yeah. check yeah, check that out. It's uh, It's very cool. Amadeus again, like you already kind of said, just kind of seeing you know these these geniuses as real people, and the idea that Mozart was basically a punk. <laughs> yeah, and that so that's that is a movie that I have seen. Um, oh, nice! One of the few on the list that I've seen, you know, not only once but seen it a couple times. And <laughs> even having seen that movie multiple times, uh, I never really, I guess, knew or learned or realized that the the whole you know, rivalry thing between Mozart and Salieri was like kind of made up for the movie. Yeah. Like yeah. they were, you know, contemporaries of each other, but they didn't, they didn't necessarily have that, you know, that really harsh rivalry. Right. And, I mean, cause through the episode and, and learning a little bit more after, I mean, Salieri was very successful in his own right. And at the time, probably even more so than Mozart. Right. It almost be like trying to say, you know, a hundred years from now that, oh yeah, Spielberg and uh, Scorsese hated each other and you know, just, yeah, trying to make it into right. something it wasn't. And also it'd be like saying, yeah, Spielberg and Scorsese hated each other and 
you know, Scorsese, you know, was basically overshadowed and considered mediocre. It's like, no, they're both still great. Right. Like Salieri was a teacher for like Franz Liszt and Beethoven. Like he was no slouch musically. (laughs) Right. But uh, but it makes a good story. It is a really good movie. And you know, and sometimes you wish they were a little more true. And it could do it could do it both. Have a movie this good that's rooted a little more in reality. I think what I even said on this one is uh, it's the first one on this list that kind of felt more like fan fiction of history as opposed right. to yes. based on a true story. It's like yes, it kind of is based on a true story, but it's it's fan fiction. But it it is a really good movie. Oh, and then I really I just kind of. Kind of more. This is I. I nerded out on the French Revolution for like three weeks here, but it was kind of just for whatever reason. I've always kind of been a bit of a Francophile and kind of a Japanophile, whatever that word would be. But uh, so so <laughs> France and Japan are kind of like just two countries that stand out to me as just particularly interesting for some reason. So I really didn't know much about the French Revolution and kind of used it as a proxy for the American Revolution since I didn't really want to be just so American-centric on this and I can always come back and do America later. But Yeah, j- just out of curiosity, is the reason – because I, I noticed you know, in the timeline as you were you know, going, going through the episodes – and again – this is my, uh, you know, American centric history brain here. But I noticed that you basically just went through, you know, the, the entire time period that is around the American Revolution and didn't touch on it. Is that because you're saving that for a different podcast at a later time? Yeah. Because like the kind of the closest we got was Last of the Mohicans. And then, you know, we, we go to, you know, Amadeus. Yeah. And the, yeah. The, yeah. And then, and then uh, the French Revolution. And then, yeah. And then we come back to America in Amistad, which is after America's already country, and I think we're we're up to what President Van Buren at that point. Yes. So yeah, I I just was curious if that was. Um, uh, it, it's kind of twofold. So yes, in in my mind, I I would have kind of consider doing a American history 100 movies after this, and you see that like the continuation of 100 movies on world history, keep the same podcast going, and then roll into 100 and just do American history, and then. Also trying to de-emphasize just the American centricness of this, which I already just inevitably because those are the movies available to me. I'm going to have enough of a uh, American focus as is, but yes, absolutely, oh, yeah. the American Revolution is a huge event. Even looking at world history, I would I would imagine, right. and that's and again, that's where I would be curious to see like, do kids growing up in Japan to what extent is the American Revolution discussed in Japan history classes when they do world history from their perspective? Um, I would think it's it's fairly significant, and it is kind of this launching point of revolutions that happen uh, throughout the world, specifically in Europe, uh, throughout. So, kind of because of all that, I then chose to focus on the French Revolution that comes basically you know right on the tail end. I mean, shoot, you know, Bastille Day is 1789, the same year we're ratifying the Constitution. So, and, right. and, that's, and that's not a coincidence. And yeah. You know, you know, they were, these same Enlightenment ideals were inspiring these these thoughts, and I talk about it in those episodes on the French Revolution. That you know, the idea that why is this one person in charge of all of us, and we got no say in putting him in charge of all of us? That's a bunch of crap, and it kind of just got to the breaking point. You know, and it just and it happened different places or different differently in different countries. So we were kind of this, you know, obviously we were actually literally part of the country of you know England, United Kingdom, whatever, and we're just you know these colonies on North America that decided to become independent and and fought for that right. But then you know France has the whole overthrow of the monarchy monarchy within their country that of course just 
ends up being chaotic for a hundred years and I haven't even gotten into where they kind of becomes, you know, I guess stable at the end of the 19th century. And then as they become a major, major world player, in, you know, in the, in the world wars, but you know, and then Germany, you know, isn't even formed as a nation until I think the 1860s and stuff like that. And that's just a random guess, but it's, it's it was, it was, it was later uh, to becoming a full fledged country. Like we, uh, we think of these others and, you know, Britain then had a more slow evolution to the point that they never actually had to get rid of the monarchy. And today it's basically a non-factor. So without ever actually, ever actually throwing it over, they still basically got rid of any power the monarchy actually had and did, and did it peaceably. And just, it's just interesting to see how all these different countries handled dealing with those things. And, and, right. and we've seen it, seen it in our lifetimes with you know libya getting rid of Gaddafi just you know what seven years ago or whatever and and that's the big thing too this whole project is kind of illustrated to me is that we're connected so yeah we're we're now but we still deal with the ramifications of this long series of events that stretches back centuries if not millennia and it's just one step then the next one day then the next and here we are today with the perspective of it but it's not separate from us. We are connected to the history and we are here because of the history. And it's just very fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And the one thing that I didn't realize about the French revolution, um, I, I always kind of thought that it was kind of a, a, a one-to-one thing with the American revolution where they were like, we are, you know, ruled by a monarch. We don't want to anymore. We want to start, you know, our own democracy or whatever. I didn't realize that they were just trying to get kind of a, like a, a constitutional democratic government. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Constitutional monarchy. And then the king was just kind of not really having it. Right. And even then that, that's the big thing though for me was that how he wasn't a bad guy trying to hang on to power. He just, he even, he even kind of talks about it. Like in multiple of the movies I watched about it, just kind of reluctantly, it was like, yeah, I was born into this. It's the burden yeah, I bear. He just didn't know any better. And he just didn't know any better. Exactly. Well, and, and and in his defense, I mean, up until that point for literally thousands of years, it was a king is, you know, the son of the ruler that came before them. And that's just how we do it, you know, because this is Earth and that's how we, you know, choose rulers. It's just the son of the guy who's ruling right now. And just, you know, there there was no um, to, to him anyway, there was, you know, there's the concept of letting the people kind of choose how to rule themselves or choosing their own government was just completely you know completely foreign right and again and that and that ties into the role that the enlightenment played in all this and then you look at literacy and that oh, i think goes back to honestly gutenberg and you know you think the significance of the printing press i think is still vastly underrated because if you have mass-produced books you now have an explosion of literacy which means an explosion of education and so without the printing press do we ever get these revolutions because you just can have you have a continued ignorant populace that just goes about its business and falls in line because it doesn't know any better? Yeah. Yeah, so that's the French Revolution. <laughs> uh, Napoleon, I, w- I wish I kind of had a better movie on, on Napoleon because Master and Commander oh, really didn't have him. I was going to bring it up. I, I have one for you. I mean, I know it's too late because you're already past that in the timeline. Uh, I was I was kind of surprised. H- have you ever heard of the movie Waterloo? I, I So I think i ran across it but it might have been something where it wasn't available unless i like straight up bought the dvd like, i was trying to get stuff that was available streamable and I, I so i think i saw the title but i didn't see where to watch it okay yeah i so i saw it on i think it was on dvd a, a, a while ago it's it's a relatively old movie it came out in the right. 70s i think yeah i think it was actually made by like a russian guy 
Okay. But it's it uh yeah, it's it's about the Battle of Waterloo that uh you know Napoleon fought against the Duke of Wellington and it is it is really really good. I mean it's the the story is good, the acting is good, but my thing that I think is the best is that they got like 16,000 extras oh, wow. to basically make, you know, two full-size armies and they have like aerial shots and it's the 70s so there's no such thing as CGI. Every person <laughs> right. and, and you know musket shot that you see is real and it's yeah, 16,000 dudes in this field and they, I mean from from what I understand they went a long long way to make sure that it was as historically accurate as possible. I mean it's basically like the closest thing to a Battle of Waterloo uh documentary. Huh. that you can get but yeah that was that's i i mean i was kind of surprised that when you when you brought up uh napoleon that that, that was uh not one of the movies on the list yeah I, 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 I think it just was yeah i think it just wasn't streamable uh what i was saying is interesting too so obviously even if you know nothing about history you've heard of waterloo and are probably you know vaguely aware that that was kind of the downfall of napoleon but i guess what what i think is interesting and easy to forget is like yes that was his final defeat but you know, he had gone to exile before, forced into exile before that, and had, you know yeah. had, had been defeated before that, and the whole you know the the debacle in Russia that ties into War and Peace, which you could also use as a Napoleon movie, and uh, all that stuff happened before, and uh, Waterloo stands out, but it's almost like it was the straw that broke the camel's back of the end yeah. of Napoleon, but he was definitely kind of on the decline well before Waterloo. It's not like he was dominating everything, and then. Ended all at once with Waterloo, never to be heard from again. Like yeah, it was... they, so they they actually uh, show that and uh, address that in the movie Waterloo. Oh, okay. So the uh, the beginning of the movie, I, I think, is is when he's going into exile on Elba. Okay. And then and then he ends up, you know, getting off and you know starts to march on Paris with just his like little group of guys. And it's actually a cool scene in the movie. So they send this, you know, the the French basically send a. A, a force out to meet him and this is supposedly 100% true but don't quote me on that but supposedly 100% true that Napoleon basically walks up to the front of the formation and is like hey if you want to kill me you know I, I'm right here go ahead and uh, the army just is like oh, no we'll join you instead huh, and, huh. It hap- and that happens multiple times like they keep sending these troops out to go fight napoleon and they just keep joining him and then oh, he wow. ends up having this huge army and that's how he retakes paris and then after after that is when he you know decides to, to uh try and invade russia and that's kind of the the impetus for the the rest of the movie being the battle of waterloo but yeah that's, that was something that was uh cool at the beginning was you know how how napoleon kind of you know still had the loyalty of all these guys even after being in exile well, I could see that he was insanely popular, and basically, you had the the monarchists would have been the faction against them. But again, we're coming off of you know they wanted to be done with the monarchy, so I don't think there was a huge portion of the population that was enamored still with the monarchy, and they saw Napoleon as kind of the best of them. I mean, he was he had he was basically oh not of low birth, but he kind of just definitely was a self made man, and you know earned earned uh, his position. It was basically you know you think of like a meritocracy. He kind of worked his way up and earned it. And did a lot of good things when he was in charge, even if he was a little megalomaniac uh, with, you know, some things, you know, making himself emperor of France and all that. But they actually still really liked him and respected him. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that kind of was how it went down. Yeah. And I mean, when he took Paris, he didn't he didn't fire a single shot. Yes. He basically just every force that came out to find him, he 
got them to join him. And then when he got to Paris, he he had all the army. They had none, and they had no choice but to be like, all right, I guess you're you're the emperor again. Wow. And uh, and the comparisons to Caesar, I think, are are, uh, are definitely there because the same same thing with Caesar. He he had no right to basically come back into Rome with with an army when he ended up taking power, but everyone just really liked him and they just kind of let him get by with it because he was popular. But then, of course, the senators thought it was too much, and so just as Napoleon is getting exiled and you know, kind of back and forth before they were done with him, Caesar was assassinated. And uh, be curious if there's any books kind of talking about the comparison between the two because I think there's there's definitely something there. Yeah. Okay. So then we were back in, you know, we like you mentioned, you know, the United States with the Amistad and you're still dealing with, with slavery. And so yeah, I also did left out the American Civil War, which is arguably still a historically significant event worldwide, although I would say not near as much as the American Revolution. But then, of course, then the issue of slavery was uh, very, very significant throughout the world. And we were probably one of the last, quote unquote, modernized countries to be dealing with that, right? Yeah. I think, uh, didn't like Great Britain outlaw slavery? I mean, pretty early. I mean, it might have been even before the American Revolution. I think. Oh, I want to say like because I I mean, so like we're going back. We're watching movies about Henry VIII. Like slavery is just not a thing there that we're even aware yeah. of. Like it, it, you kind of surfed them and stuff, but I don't know that the British had slaves to any significant extent in the last thousand years. Now, obviously, in their colonies was to be a different story, but as far as in on the island of you know England itself, I don't. I never really hear about slaves whenever anything. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, and this is going to sound terrible, but I, I'm sure that it. I'm sure that it was just because of you know the the whole imperial colonial way that Great Britain was. But you might be right. I just. I guess I always just assumed that it was. Just because of you know the the way that they you know colonized right uh, and and ruled so much of the world, I just assumed that they would be like, oh, we'll just make some of these people work for us because uh, you know we're the British and we're going to force them to, and there are slaves now, but right, Def- definitely indentured servitude and serfdom and all that. But I guess I feel like mm-hmm. when they when they went to India, I don't think then they brought back a bunch to be slaves in British households. Like I just don't ever, I don't think I've ever heard of that being a thing. Yeah, I, I haven't heard of it either. And now, I mean, now that you bring it up, you you might be totally right that maybe it maybe it never was a thing there. Yeah, and I like how this is a history podcast. We're just kind of making stuff up. <laughs> uh. Oh yeah. So one of the things that uh, that I found really fascinating about Amistad was the all the legal stuff. So like, you know, how do we? <laughs> because we can't look at these people as humans. So how do we define them legally? Are they, you know, salvage? Are they, oh, you know, wow. right. uh, illegally procured property? And it, it was almost like, you know, it's like, no, they're, I mean, they're, they're people, you know, that they, they, they should have, you know, rights as humans. But it was, you know, that just at the time that that just didn't even occur to some people that, that they should treat the humans as, as human beings. Yeah, it's unreal. And, and I think also, though, then the same, the flip side is that in this time where there was extensive slavery in the South, that there was people who, even at that time, were just as appalled by it as we are. And them having to live in the world where it existed when they were just like, couldn't even get their head around it. Yeah. And uh, and definitely fought fought uh, violently sometimes to try to protect the, those people and, and get, get, get them uh, freed, which ultimately they did going back to our boy Lincoln. Yeah. And, and how demoralizing must it be 
for them to be like, well, look, basically you can, we might be able to win this case, but the way that we're going to do it is that you're going to not have to be people now. Right. Like, right. Like, you know, and it's, you know, and they're like, you know, Oh, I, I think you're a person, you know, I think you should have your freedom, but you know, given the way that the system is, you know, we, we can't have you be people legally, but, but trust us, it's in your own best interest. It's like, Oh man. Right. Right. And do you basically do you want to win by conceding that point, which is basically what the exactly. ultimate did. Yeah. Yeah. What a mess. Emigrants was cool, basically, just because I, I I mentioned in the podcast just the the family history ties that this is the you know I you know I kind of got the the Scandinavian branch of the family that basically went through probably darn near exactly what the people in this film went through and just kind of the the poverty level over there and bad crops and everything that just kind of forced them out of these beautiful countries. If we think of Scandinavia today as just being basically utop- the closest thing to utopia on Earth seems to be the Scandinavian countries right now, but if you can't grow food and you can't, you know, feed your family, then it's time to leave and find a better life elsewhere. And that's, uh, that's kind of what that movie's about. And then, uh, like I said, I had, uh, ancestors who went through the exact same thing, just again, you know, a little more than a hundred years ago, 150 years ago that they were coming over from, and again, you know, talking about the connection to history, it's, it's, it's right there, uh, with our European ancestors. Yeah. And something that, uh, that you brought up in the episode was, uh, talking about, you know, the fact that they would, you know, specifically not speak their native tongue um, in favor of uh, speaking English. Right. And which is something that, you know, living in Phoenix, when I was a cop, I actually worked in a predominantly Hispanic area. And that's something that you even see there is that a lot of those people, they're, you know, either they are immigrants themselves or they're first generation Americans and their their first language is Spanish. But when they're talking to you, they will opt to speak you know, English, that they are objectively not as good at speaking English as they are speaking Spanish, but they would rather try and speak English to you rather than try and talk to you through an interpreter who's mm. speaking Spanish. Okay. And I just thought that was really interesting, especially because this, the movie, The Immigrants, takes place in 1844. So, I mean, America is not that old, and yet you already have this kind of American identity that immigrants that are coming over are kind of trying to assimilate into American society. And when you think about, especially that time period, the amount of time between, you know, America becoming its own country and then this this time period, the 1840s, on, on a scale, you know, on the scale of, of history, that's that's nothing. And right. uh, already you have this American culture that uh, the people are trying to assimilate to. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Okay, trying to speed, speed through the rest here to, uh, man, we're, it's, uh, it's earlier for you, but it's getting late for me. <laughs> so yeah, uh, Zulu, kind of more British, British colonial stuff. You know, we talked about India a little bit earlier. I guess I didn't really have a movie set in India. But yeah, just kind of British imperialism. And uh, I do think it's it's crazy, too, how quickly we've forgotten. Especially, we are the last country that should be forgetting what happened to the British Empire. And yeah, Britain is still a powerful country within the world. But America at its highest... I don't think can even come close to sniffing what Britain was just 150 years ago. And we're acting like we're, you know, the end all be all of countries on earth. And Britain was bigger and badder than we ever were. 
and they fell back to mediocrity as far as a global power standpoint goes. I mean, obviously, it's still a fine country and everything. And the fact that we aren't recognizing that that's a possibility and we're, you know, we're, we're caving into nationalism right now and a little bit of isolationism and not realizing that we are have a role to play cooperating with the rest of the world, I just think we are... We in, in our lifetime, we might see that that fall come to uh, come to fruition. I guess that you know when we were growing up, America was the country, and then by the time we leave this earth, America might just be just another country, and we're living in a in, a, in the Chinese Chinese dominated world or whoever, and we, we might totally. be seeing that over the next few decades. Yeah, yeah. One thing that I did like about Zulu, uh, this again is one of the few that I have seen. Oh wow! Okay. So one of the things that I really like about this movie is that so it came out in 1964. So like, you know, height of the civil rights movement, you know, type like that era. And it would have been so easy for those filmmakers to depict the Zulu warriors as these mindless savages just out to kill the British for absolutely no reason. But they I think they really did a good job of you know, kind of humanizing them, showing their side of the story to the point where even though they're, I guess, the quote unquote antagonists, I won't even call them villains, but the antagonists of our, you know, our main British characters, you definitely feel sorry for them. I mean, you can totally sympathize with the fact that, hey, look, I mean, they were given these ridiculous, you know, terms that they were, they were basically just, you know, a shallow excuse for the British to be able to invade them. They were just kind of, you know, defending their own land, just like you would if you were in the same situation and, you know, the the British are going to invade you, you would, you know, stand up for yourself. Yeah, I just I just thought that that was that 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 concept was kind of really well done by the movie, especially because of the time period that it was made in. Yeah, and I and I hadn't even thought about it being during the the civil rights era, and you're absolutely right. Now, and and they did a great job of making the Zulu this noble warrior people. I I, I agree with that. Now, at the flip side, though, I think I mentioned in, in the episode two, I wish they had done a better job actually making them seem like individuals. So I think they were they did make them seem like a noble people, but they were still kind of this faceless mob just kind of zerging their way onto onto the British encampment there. And so I, I think, yeah, they were definitely more respectful than one would expect from the 1960s. But uh, I think if you're making that movie today, you're going to you would have it where you'd actually meet individual Zulu tribesmen and get to know them individually, as opposed to just giving the whole culture this kind of tip of the hat that uh, we do respect you as a as a as a group. Yeah, totally. Which I mean, look, yeah, and I agree, you know, looking through it, looking at the movie through the lens of what we know and believe today. Yeah, they they totally could have done a better job. But I yeah, I think major props to that movie for in 1964. I mean, even trying at all to be sympathetic to the, you know, tribe of African people. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, yeah, it definitely. And that is kind of, even the, the lens thing is kind of interesting that how we're we're at 2019 looking at a 1964 movie about an 1879 event. That's it, it is it's uh, fa- fascinating. Tombstone, we, we already talked about a little bit, just kind of the American Old West is iconic and uh, a place you mentioned on uh, the Track Nurse podcast. You would uh, be willing, willing to visit provided. Uh, oh, I- 
I, I actually have been to Tombstone. Oh, that's right. You, that's mean, right. You've so, just uh, been to Tombstone. Well, you, you weren't there in the 1890s, though, or the 1880s. No. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, oh, man, I, I, I could probably honestly do an entire podcast on, uh, you know, Tombstone, the, both the history and the movie. But, uh, oh, yeah, I, I just love I love everything about it. So I've always been a huge Tombstone fan. I know you have as well. You know, we, and, you know, Sam, you and Sam and I had probably talked about it. How we just love Tombstone and uh, rewatching it for this movie, I was like, "Oh, it does not hold up well." Oh, you're completely incorrect. No, dude. You're so no, incorrect. no. You, <laughs> I'm telling you, it's kind of, it's kind of over the. No, I, I'm going to say this. I still love it, but it's kind of over the top. And uh, that's what I love about it. Okay, okay, fair. But uh, so I feel like when I was younger, I would say like, "Oh my gosh, it's a travesty that Val Kilmer wasn't, you know, didn't win Best Supporting Actor for this." And then watching it, like, you know, just a few months ago, I was like, "Oh yeah, no, I get it. He, uh, he's, uh, he's kind of chewing up the scenery a little bit, and it's, it's, it's just kind of over the top, and the directing is all over the place." Because they had multiple directors, and the whole thing is kind of a hot mess. But I do still enjoy it. Like, there's just a lot of things that are like kind of silly if you watch it with a more film snobby mind i guess like the handshake on the end like good job sir we have now defeated the cowboys i'm gonna (laughs) shake my hand while we're riding a horse and it's just like yeah it's a little over the top when why the heck is is that they bring in uh uh, charlton heston at the end to be this guy for no reason like this is a lot it's it's just a mess (laughs) yeah i so i i agree i (laughs) i purposely uh, will never apply my film snobby portion of my brain to this movie specifically because it is so over the top. You know, I mean, e- even little stuff like where they, you know, it's right after, you know, Morgan gets killed, spoiler alert, and, uh, you know, <laughs> for a 26 year old movie. About and, things uh, that really happened in real life. <laughs> yeah. And they're, you know, they're riding by curly bill and he goes smells like somebody died like you know it's absolutely ridiculous <laughs> yeah but yeah i love it. i love it. you're daisy if you do <laughs> yeah. no i i love tombstone but it's a hot mess and then and then i'll couple again i'm i'm, I'm uh i gotta get to bed here these uh <laughs> the, the last three movies we can even kind of couple together was just kind of these three bile picks picks to round out the 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 19th century here and kind of almost even a shift i really didn't have a lot of good big historical event movies to talk about, but I almost think this is a better way to look at it. Just kind of life at the end of the 19th century. And we are, you know, very much within, you know, what we were talking about before, kind of a quote unquote, our modern society and way of looking at the world. And yes, minus, you know, the technological innovations that are, you know, soon to come the 20th century is just this rocket ship of, of change and technology and, even using the analogy of a rocket ship is very 20th century. <laughs> and just you think of the world at 1900 versus the world at 2000. We've, we've never seen 100 years like that. And I'm almost to the point that I know it's only 2019, but I'm going to be surprised if 2000 to 2100 is as big of a leap as it was from 1900 to 2000. And uh, Really? You don't think you think that that curve's going to level off? You don't. Oh, you don't think okay, that the, okay. So it'll keep uh, going up. I would say, from in terms of raw technology, I would say yes, that is unlikely, and I understand that the pace of technology goes exponentially. But here's here. For, I will say though, from the standpoint of if you were to show a person our age in 1900 the world of 2000, 
I think that level of awe would be greater than the level of awe that we will have of the world 100 years from now. Even though, even that, I think we have a better grasp of. Yes, I, we understand that exponential growth. It's going to be crazy. We're going to have, you know, self-driving cars and maybe colonies on the. We, we almost think like that's not unlikely. Versus, I think the things that were around at 2000, the people in 1900 couldn't even comprehend. As, okay. Or, yeah, I can. I can see that. Like, where, whereas we can look at some sort of future technology and say, "Oh, wow, that's a really advanced technology." Someone in 1900 might look at something like an iPhone and go, "Oh my God, that is literally magic." You are a wizard. I don't understand how that right, can be happening right. at all. And, and just everything from planes. You know, they had trains and like telegraphs and stuff. But then to take that to the internet and airplanes and space travel and the quantum leap we made forward because of quantum physics and everything that was, you know, that allowed, you know, opened up for us. And uh, I, I, I just think it's uh, the 20th century blew the whole world open in, in a way that uh, I do think if you're looking at world history, a hundred, you know, 500 years from now, a thousand years from now, I think the 20th century Will stand out as holy cow, like 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 the way we look at the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. Sure. Now, I think the 20th century is going to be that boom for uh, future civilizations to to kind of look back on as like a oh holy cow, this is when it all began, and uh, I think there's something to that. Yeah, yeah. Call, I mean, call back to the uh, to the Trackers podcast, but I mean, you can't really make a uh, a series you couldn't make a tv series dedicated to each decade of like between 1500 and 1600 exactly but you totally can between 1900 and 2000 exactly. where each decade is like its own thing and there's these monumental achievements every every you know step of the way absolutely and even and, and we're and we're and we're always seeing that blurry now the the first and second decades of the 21st century and maybe that's because we're in them but i don't feel like they have that same identity stamp that the decades of the 20th century still have to us. Like you got, you know, the 50s, picture of the U.S. in the 1950s, the 60s, the 70s, 80s. They're all so iconic. Are we going to get branded in that same way three decades from now? You're going to look back at the first, you're going to be able to identify the first decade of the 21st century as, I don't even know what that would be. Yeah. It seems like it starts to blur. I don't know. Maybe it's that way for people who lived through like, you know, people now who are like in their 80s. And it could be, and it could be, and that that'd be that'd be uh that'd be interesting to see how that develops. Yeah, we're just we're just not removed enough from right. And you so know, maybe two thousand five to see how that's completely different from two thousand fifteen. Right, and maybe and maybe you do need to be more removed. I, I that that probably is true. But I think that's a good place to uh, uh, wrap up this kind of wrap up episode of season two of History and Film. Thank you so much for joining me. Any any final final words or just kind of about the uh, the state of the world at the end of the the 19th century or movies you're excited to maybe see me catch here going forward. Like you mentioned, uh, Charlie Wilson's war, the basically the next, um, the next quarter will be basically the first next 50 years. So we're going to go from basically 500 years in this last quarter. The next 25 movies are going to be just about 50 years here. Yeah. I'm excited to, uh, to see you do the, uh, for the uh, for the turn of the century, I'm excited to see you do the documentary, uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, I believe takes place around that, uh, that time frame. I think that'll be really, really cool to see. Oh my gosh, Logan Dennis. <laughs> you are one of the few people who know 
to the extent to which I hate the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> okay, okay. We're uh I'm gonna we're gonna I'm gonna sign off the podcast here now and then uh so yeah, thanks everybody for listening. I'll catch you again this fall. Uh election day is the scheduled start, possibly another Halloween, you know, bonus episode to get us kicked off or kicked you know, kicked started, but uh no promises. Thanks for listening. Catch you later. Thank you, Logan. Yep, see ya.